listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. I'm going to take a minute before we get to our next segment just to talk a little about the things that are changing in our state right now. June 1st was the day that Governor Gretchen Whitmer said outdoor restrictions, outdoor provisions that we've been under since uh, the pandemic really started. We're going to go away here in the state of Michigan. And I think you can already see people really starting to take advantage uh, of that. When I was out last night, I saw more people out doing things outdoors than I have in a long time and lots of people not wearing masks and things like that. Of course, this is all leading up to July 1st when all of the restrictions that are related to COVID-19 are set to expire here in Michigan, which means that we can go back to packed indoor restaurants. We can go to uh, all kinds of things that we haven't been able to do indoors for a really long time. And I think it will officially mark the end, the public end of the pandemic. I'm excited about all of these things and I'm excited for everyone else. I know how long of a stretch this has been and how hard it has been, not just uh, the restrictions, but of course, all of the sickness and loss that we've experienced. But I also want to just throw out a little bit of caution here that everything is not the way it was before. Everything is not absolutely normal when it comes to COVID. This is still a very deadly disease. There are still lots of people who are vulnerable to that disease because they haven't been vaccinated, either because they've chosen not to, or in some cases, because they can't take the vaccine. So I I think as summer gets started, and I think this is going to be a really hot summer (laughs) in terms of activity and energy, Uh, from people here in Southeast Michigan. We are really eager to get back outdoors. Uh, But I also think we need to just take a little pause and think about uh, being careful, still taking some precautions when you can, if not for yourself, then for the other people who are still really vulnerable to this uh, disease. It's something that uh, has been on my mind for a bit. It's also something that we will be talking about across this month as we wind up to that July 1st marker when uh, everything is supposed to go back to normal. Okay, have you ever looked to see what's on a friend or family member's bookshelf and realize you can actually tell a lot about someone based on what they're reading? Our next guest has taken this idea and applied it to our nation. In her new book, researcher, writer, and author Jess McHugh explores the origins, the context, and the implications of 13 of America's most popular books, and she explores how these texts fit into our society as a whole. The book is called Americanon, an unexpected U.S. history in 13 best-selling books. And Jess McHugh joins me now to talk about her book and what we can learn about our history and culture by looking at these books through a critical lens. I'd also love to hear from you throughout this conversation. What are the books that have been personal touchstones or mile markers throughout your life? Texts that you hold sacred, that you keep in your house, maybe even in a special place. Texts that you return to over and over, maybe at critical times in your life 
reading to gain new insight about what they tell you about our world. Maybe you have a book that you think has played a significant role in American society more broadly. Let us know what that is. Call and tell me what the book is, and uh, we're going to work you into the conversation with writer, researcher, and author Jess McHugh. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Right now, I want to welcome author Jess McHugh to Detroit Today. Great to have you here with us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So let's start with how you selected these 13 books in Americanon. Where did where did you start? Sure. So I, you know, I love novels and I love all, all kinds of literature, but I really wanted to look at this sort of alternative canon of books, which is to say the kind of more mundane daily books that people actually read, you know, every single day, whether it was in 1792 or 1892. So I, I kind of tried to focus on the day, on the data, on the numbers to look at which books sold the most consistently over our history, whether, and, and, and it tends to be in the kind of tens of millions range. And so whether it's an almanac or a dictionary or a cookbook, I was really looking at these kind of these books that you don't read once, that you you reread and, and you look to for guidance, both about spelling or cooking and, and kind of more broadly about life. <laughs> so so the, the opposite end of that question, I think, is how did you narrow it down to 13? I mean, this is a pretty old country now and there's lots that's happened. How did you find just 13 that, in your view, kind of defined who we are and what our history is like? Well, it was extremely difficult. I will tell you that there were, it took, it took me about a year to get it to 13 and I was aiming for 10. So what happened was, is I just couldn't take some of them off. I think, you know, I was, I was really trying to focus on, on those bestsellers, on those books that kind of hit an inflection point in our society. But, you know, like I say, in the introduction to the book, and I, and I love that you let in with this in the intro, I, I think it's American and is, is a starting point. And I hope that it kind of sparks conversation about which books served this role in people's lives based on where and when they grew up. So I think you can break the book up uh, in terms of uh, like three separate American archetypes. And I want to talk about each of them. But the first one is uh, the ideal citizen. Uh, and that consists of the old farmer's almanac, Webster's speller, Webster's English dictionary, and the autobiography of, uh, of Ben Franklin. And uh, these are all books from the country's early days, the 17 and 1800s. But uh, what do these books as a collection communicate about our values and our notions of patriotism at that point in our history? Yes, great question. So I think, you know, they, they all come at it at a slightly different angle, but what they're really doing is they're kind of speaking to some of the earliest values of, of the American Republic, which is to say the ideal citizen was often considered as a farmer. Even Ben Franklin, who was not a farmer, said mm -hmm. a farmer would be the best thing for somebody to be. So that was highly valued because it's somebody who is actively cultivating the land, both for the good of themselves and, and for others. The, the notion of being of independence was, was hugely popular 
popular throughout all of these books that you should be able to be self-sufficient in what you do. I would also say what I found fascinating about a book like The Almanac was that it, it really encouraged people to be active citizens. The Almanac didn't just have farming information, which it of course had. It also had court dates. It also had information about how much money the president made. It was encouraging people to take an active role in their democracy. And that's something that you see again and again in these early books. Hmm. So uh, let's talk about uh, Webster's Speller and Webster's English Dictionary, which are two books that that I have always thought are uh, important, uh, important kind of foundational texts here in in America. They they get though to the idea of language and framework for for language. I wonder if you can talk some about those two books, why they're included, and and what you think they add to that uh, to that treatise. Sure. So so Webster is really what started it all for me because he was such a strange and fascinating person and his speller sold something like 100 million copies. The dictionary has sold upwards of 56 million copies. So these are really the books that become the dictionary for so many Americans to this day. And what surprised me about him was I had always imagined a dictionary to be kind of you know, designed by a committee, kind of a, a boring, innocuous book. But Webster really saw the dictionary and the speller and American English as a way to form this new, exciting American identity that would be able to be something we could rally around. And so he considered himself a nationalist. He considered himself a born-again Christian. And to him, the idea was that we can make an American English as different from British English as, you know, Dutch is from German. And this is going to be the way Way that we're going to differentiate ourselves from our enemies, the Brits. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Jess McHugh. She's a writer, researcher, and author of the new book called Americanon, an unexpected U.S. history and 13 best-selling books. Uh, we're talking about books. We're talking about the books that uh, Jess McHugh has chosen, but we also want to talk about the books that you have chosen for your life, the things, the texts that uh, you go back to over and over again, the texts that maybe define something about you or your experience that uh, you hold sacred, even uh, books that you go back and read maybe at critical times uh, in your life. And maybe you have a book that falls into that category that you think also speaks to the greater American experience, maybe defines the American experience in some way. We'd love to hear what those books are. We'd love to hear why they matter to you and how often you go back to them. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, just before we get to listeners, uh, I want to talk about the the sort of second category of books in your book. Uh, these are books that deal with depictions of womanhood, and it includes a handful of books, uh, including The American Woman's Home from 1869 and Betty Crocker's Cookbook from 1950. Tell me about this uh, literary umbrella that covers books about the female experience. 
Yes, definitely. So it's what is is kind of striking is that the first books that we see that are really popular and are are directly targeted toward women tend to have to do with the home. And in the 19th century, it's all about this this quite intense notion of domesticity, the idea that the way that women decorate their homes, the way that they raise their children, the way that they, you know, scrub their toilets is a reflection of the nation's salvation at large. And it's something that kind of vaguely translates strangely throughout the 20th century. And you see Betty Crocker, what is what is kind of surprising to me about her is she her heyday is is during World War II and the post-World War II era. And a lot of what she is talking about is the way to win the war, the way to survive is by these efforts at home. And, and that was kind of one of the, the earliest archetypes that women had was their participation in the American project was that they could raise and teach American citizens. And and the the progress, I guess, uh, over time is one of the things that I think is really interesting about the books that you've chosen here. Uh, the 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 gap between what defines the female experience in 1869 and 1950 is is pretty profound. Oh, certainly. I mean, just the kind of portrays quite an old-fashioned understanding of women and, and their role in society. And what I find interesting is even Betty Crocker, for instance, the Betty Crocker picture cookbook that sells 75 million copies that comes out in 1950. And we often have this understanding of the 1950s with the kind of June Cleaver view. And that was certainly part of it. But in the 1950s, you actually see women's employment growing for the first time really hugely. You see government tax deductions for childcare. And so the vision that we have that all women were at home is, is not exactly the case. And you even see, for instance, black women were earning uh, degrees at a higher rate than white women or black men at the time. And, and that's not something that's included in the Betty Crocker vision per se. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Dave on Twitter says, kind of related, but I really enjoy the book. History in the Making. It analyzes important topics of American history and how the teaching of those subjects evolved over the centuries using excerpts of U.S. textbooks. Dave, thank you for that. I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, with that particular book. Uh, let's go to Delphine in Warren. Delphine, welcome well, to the show. I get back to you in a couple minutes. I'm on hold for the... <laughs> Delphine, <laughs> you're not on hold anymore. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Go ahead. And I, I for years, um, my favorite book, I guess, that I go to continuously is the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. Huh. I've given them to my daughters for gifts. And uh, this new, uh, when we moved, uh, all, most of my books were lost. So my daughter-in-law bought me the 17th edition. There's pictures of how the products should look, and um, it's it's a keeper. I go to it continuously because I love to bake. Wow, uh, Delphine, that's uh, that's a very cool 
That's a very cool story, and that's a very cool text to to be attached to. Uh, Jess McHugh, this is kind of like uh, you know Betty Crocker's cookbook uh, from from 1950, Better Homes and Gardens, kind of falls in the same same category. Yes, and it's actually it was a book that I, I did some research on as well because it was also a huge bestseller. I think it's a second only to Betty Crocker, and I, I believe it sold something like thirty to thirty five million copies, which is also huge. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Delphine, thanks very much for the call uh, and the thoughts there. Uh, Let's go to Harper in Dearborn Heights. Harper, what's on your mind? Hello. I'd just like to say the book that I really like to read, uh, besides that of the Bible, of course, is uh, Dark Water, Voices from Within the Veil by W.E.B. Du Bois. Hmm. Yeah. I find the book still relevant even today, very relevant, even even for our times today. Yeah. Uh, Talk about what it is. What's the relevance you're drawing from that text over and over, Harper? Well, the enlightenment that he gives upon race relations in America, if you can't, uh, you know, it's almost like the uh, fundamental book upon race. If you read it mm-hmm. upon race relations in America, you can't, you know, you can't, you know, this book cannot be denied. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Harper, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. So Jess McHugh, talk about, the role that race and uh, inequality plays in your take on the 13 books that uh, that kind of define the American history and, and experience. Definitely. So that's, that's something I return to kind of again and again in, in each chapter because these books, some of them on purpose, some of them by accident, are often portraying something of a restricted view of of American society. It tends to be very white. It tends to be very middle class for, you know, people who want to try to become white and middle class. And so what happens is that you see a lot of the the diversity of our nation that I think has been our strong suit excised, where the authors will prefer to focus on the stories that they know, the stories that they grew up with, rather than taking a broader broader view of, of what the American story might look like if we hear from more people. And that's something that I really advocate for throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with uh, Jess McHugh uh, about her new book, uh, Americanon, An Unexpected U.S. History in 13 Bestselling Books. We are also going to continue to hear from you about your books, the books that you hold sacred, the books you go back to over and over again uh, as kind of touchstones for your life or for your understanding of the country we all share. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there, and we'll work you in. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Jess McHugh. She's a writer, researcher, and author of the new book called Americanon, An Unexpected U.S. History 
in 13 best-selling books. We are talking about her book, the 13 texts that are included in it, but we also want to hear from you about texts uh, that you think are important, either to your life or to understanding our lives here in America, texts that maybe you go back to over and over again. As always, give us a call on the phones here, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019 to share what books mean a lot to you. Um, you can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put uh, comments there and uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, Jess, I want to talk about the final chunk of books you write about. And they range from the 1930s through the present day and they include the self-help and self-made man ethos. Talk a little about those books and how they fit into the rest of uh, of the canon that you put together here. Sure. So this this kind of last chunk, as you mentioned, it starts with uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, which is this this kind of depression era book about about success in business. And and it ranges all the way through up to uh, Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And what I find fascinating, I guess, to start with with Carnegie is that he he writes this book about optimism and smiling, but he really comes out of kind of despair and lack. He he grows up on this indebted farm in Missouri at the turn of the 20th century. He has to commute to college on horseback because his parents can't afford the $1 a year room and board. And so the book that he writes really comes out of his own experience looking around for something to hold on to. And I think that that's something that resonates on a huge scale with so many Americans who are just trying to survive after the Great Depression. And I think that speaks to the role that that self-help has played throughout our history and continues to play today which is that people often turn to it in moments of ambiguity or turmoil when they feel as if nothing is in their control. These books are something that that can be a way of taking the power back, whether it's it's actually the case or whether it's, you know, just something to kind of cling to. Mm. Uh, and, and so that last that last sort of uh, chunk. Um, wh- where does that leave America now, as you as you see it? I mean, it, it does come up through the present day. There's a lot of talk about what kind of country we share and what kind of vision we have for it. What do these books tell us about that? Sure. Well, I think, you know, as, as I hinted at earlier, a lot of the books in, in the 20th century and certainly earlier can sometimes offer quite a limiting view of, of where our country is and, and where it should be headed. And I think as time goes on, you start to see a broadening of, of the definition of American. And as you have, or as we have more and more books being published, both in this genre and others, we get to see and hear from more and more voices. And so personally, I hope that's that's where we're headed, where we no longer have this single definition of American, but where we can hear from all of the different places and people and, and notions of what it means to be American. Mm. So Michael on Twitter says, I buy and read books somewhat frequently. The books I keep tend to be history books, though I just looked at my collection and realized most of my kept books are not new. Uh, does the guest have thoughts on whether recent books are more disposable? That's a great question, Jess. 
That is a great question. I don't know. I'm also, I'm quite a hoarder of books, so I don't remember the last time I gave a book away. But I do understand, I think, like anything with time, things become more precious to us. And and that's what I really liked about books. And that's what what, what drew me to this, this notion for American and was the idea that our books are precious to us. And just like, you know, the books on our shelf we feel, or I like to think that they say something about us, that the idea of a, of a national bookshelf could perhaps say something about our country. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Brad in Rochester Hills. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, Stephen, how you doing today? I'm, I'm good. How are you? Hey, uh, just uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, there's a Two uh, books in my existing uh, collection, as small as this, because I'm a minimalist. Given the fact I uh, uh, live in an apartment uh, community which only has uh, 535 uh, square feet at best in uh, hmm. uh, each uh, unit, and uh, uh, as small as my unit is, I like to keep uh, things as neat and tidy as uh, possible. As a minimalist, uh, there's one uh, book that stands out uh, in the terms of Christian living. It's called Seven by Jen Hatmaker. Its subtitle is Experimental Immunity Against Access. Hmm. And uh, uh, I've uh, read it through uh, only once, and it's uh, it helped me to realize that, uh, what my uh, former uh, senior pastor at uh, uh, St. Aaron's Catholic Church in Rochester Hills once uh, said during a previous uh, Lenten uh, season that where he was last uh, shepherding our congregation up. Uh, well, the bottom line for me, uh, the way I see it, is live simply so that others can simply live. Mm. Mm. And the, the other book that stands out uh, to in Christian living is Do It Afraid by Joyce Meyer, but subtitles Embracing Courage in the Face of Fear. And uh, both of those books that are still on my shelf, uh, even though I've uh, only read them one there's some nuggets that uh, uh, point out to me that I reflect on uh, mm. every now and then, uh, as it's been the case uh, uh, during this COVID pandemic. Those are the two books uh, during this whole uh, pandemic era that you know, that we're working our way out of it have, uh, have got me through uh, the most trying times. Wow, wow, mm. Brad, that's a that's a wonderful story, and I mean, it's really impressive that. That these two books have not just kind of uh, stayed with you, but but have really shaped the way that you that that you live this this minimalist approach. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the fewer possessions of uh, even the few bare uh, necessities, uh, I could just uh, just survive on that. So I really could focus on uh, what really matters uh, in. Uh, my spiritual well-being and my overall lifestyle in, uh, in general and wow. what I do, I'm do, doing uh, my secular activities like uh, uh, bathing and, uh, and you know, housekeeping and mm-hmm. uh, laundry and wow. just uh, keeping things uh, very simple. Sure. Uh, Brad, I really, really appreciate the the call and and you sharing that experience with us. Uh, Jess McHugh, it, it strikes me that, that for starters, the, the the I guess the influence that these books had on Brad is really opposite what uh, the last part of your book kind of looks at, which is sort of the emergence, I think, of 
American largesse and the the, the bigness of uh, of this country. But but those two books that he's talking about sent him in a really in a really different direction. Yeah, definitely. It was it was great to hear from him. Uh, and I also think it, it speaks to the fact uh, it, it reminds me especially of of earlier, you know, generations in, in America, because for so long, so many people really did only own a few books. And, and like Brad said, if, when you own just a few books, they, they have such an outsized influence on you. And I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, the books on, on yourself, especially the ones that you revisit can have so yeah, this this profound relationship that that endures long after you've read them. I liked how he said he keeps them, even though he's he's only read them through once. But they've got these nuggets that you can kind of return to, and I think that's that's something a lot of us do. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Brad, thanks uh, so much to, for uh, the call uh, and the experience that you shared. Let's go to uh, Dorothy in Dearborn. Dorothy, what's on your mind? You there, Dorothy? Can you hear me? Yep, there. Go Excellent. Ahead. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm loving this discussion. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, my go-to book is A Sand County Almanac, uh, published in 1948 by Aldo Leopold, hmm. considered the father of wildlife conservation in North America. And Jess was speaking about um, a book to return to time and time again, and this is certainly one of those. It's excellent literature. Um, that really exemplifies ecological principles and the phenology or the seasonality of um, of our natural world. And just thinking about different essays in there, the good oak has to do with uh, cutting down or um, uh, a tree that, that fell in a storm and cutting it down and, and uh, uh, reconstructing and looking at the rings and going back in human history hmm. and relating what the tree has experienced to what humans have experienced and um, working with small children or not so small children, uh, everybody can get very excited about, oh, I know how to tell how old a tree is and they mm-hmm. want to count the rings. Mm-hmm. Well, Leopold takes that just a step farther or two and uh, can relate wow. history yeah. with natural processes wow wow that's a that's a pretty amazing that's a pretty amazing uh, dimension to, to to think about there jess i wonder if you have a reaction to to this book sand county almanac yes i love that this is such a great one and i i love the points that you bring up i'm i'm kind of in a i'm kind of obsessed with almanacs and i'm a, a collector of them and i i completely agree what i think is so beautiful about them and so rare is that like you say they really are this call to observe the natural world and it's something that i think often get often gets lost and they they kind of bring our attention both back to the grand you know eclipses and and harvest moons but also to the humble to trees grow and insects hatching, and I think that's just rare and wonderful. Mm, yeah, Dorothy, I really appreciate the call and uh, and that example. Thanks, Let's Mike. go to uh, Taryn in Detroit. Taryn, welcome to hi, the show. Hi, hi, this is me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, the book um, that I wanted to mention, and I reread it during the pandemic, is Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I think it's such an important book. I think if people actually read the book, they would stop using um, um, 
Uncle Tom, the Uncle Tom character as a pejorative. He was a good guy in the book. And also I want to point out that at the end of the book, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe actually makes a case for reparations Mm -hmm. using that exact word. Mm, Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is a very different text than uh, the sort of modern... um, you know, modern iteration of, of you know, that, that word and that, that phrase is used. Uh, and, and I think it's probably fair to say most people have not read, uh, read that text. It's not, it's not something that, uh, that a lot of people do. Jess, I wonder what your reaction is to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes, I will say I read it, but it's been a, it has been a long time. Yeah. Um, but I will say Harriet Beecher Stowe is very top of mind because she actually co-wrote uh, one of the books in my book, uh, The American Woman's Home, with her sister. Mm. And it was kind of it was fascinating to me because she was concerned about a lot of social issues, including slavery. But she was also really thinking about you know the future of women and the future of the home. And I think she saw the future of the home as, as quite connected to uh, dealing with the trauma of the Civil War and trying to find common ground across American families. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Taryn, I uh, really appreciate the call and uh, the example. Let's go to V in Detroit. V, what's on your mind? Hi. Hey. I'm going to be quick because I don't have much time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my book, I've had this for over 20 years. I have the revised edition, and the book is by Dr. Peter J. DeAnimo with Catherine Whitney. It's four blood types, four diets. What does it do? Everything. It helps you lose weight if you want to lose weight. It helps you with your health. It helps you with any condition you have Mm. because it tells you before you even get that way. Four blood types. O, A, A, B, B. We need to get that book. I'm sorry, what what was the title of the book again? The title is Four Blood Types. Four diets. The number four blood types, four diets. Eat right for your blood type. Well, there you go. I I have not heard of that book, but V, I really appreciate you calling and uh, and sharing that with us. Uh, And I'm glad that that you've found such inspiration from it. Uh, Let's go to Mike in Farmington Hills before we have to end. Mike, I've got about 30 seconds left. Go ahead. Oh, I'll be fast. Okay. (laughs) I uh, I just wanted to say that I find great enjoyment in reading Walter Mosley's series about Easy Rollins. Um, the Devil in a Blue Dress is one that I return to over and over again. It's a great story. It speaks in a language that is very familiar, and mm-hmm. it talks about a, a great fictional American that's living life in an America that maybe wasn't designed for him yeah yeah mike uh i'm a, a fan of some of mosley's work as well uh just that's kind of a modern example of the ways that uh you know i mean mysteries have been around for a long time but these modern mysteries i think uh occupy a, a different space in in our culture definitely and it's it's certainly a genre that i'm i'm a fan of as well i think that's a great choice yeah okay uh jess McHugh, Author of the new book, Americanon and Unexpected U.S. History, and 13 best selling books. It was really great to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about youth mental health 
and WDET's new podcast, The Science of Grief. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.